Welcome to Write Now with Scrivener, where writers talk about how they work, how they develop their ideas, and how they use Scrivener, the app built for long-form writing projects. I'm your host, Kirk McElhern, author of Take Control of Scrivener. Today, I'm very happy to welcome Bill Thompson. Bill Thompson is a thriller author, and Bill Thompson is a retired full-time thriller author. Is that correct? That's correct. You got into writing quite late, didn't you? I did, yeah. I've been writing since uh, 2009. I won't ask how old you are, because that's not polite, but I can tell you're older than me. So this was at the end of your career that you switched from a lot of things, which we'll get into in a minute, to becoming a writer? That's correct. Yeah, I'm 75 years old. I got into this sort of uh, by accident. My wife became ill. I became a caregiver. And the longer I had to be at home, the more she said, why don't you finish that book and started 30 years ago and quit bugging me. So that's sort of how it started. That's a great lesson for people who do start a novel and don't finish it and think, oh, rats, I never got around to finishing it, that there's always an opportunity, right? That's correct. So I'm looking at your website and you've done a lot of things. And I'm going to just read some of them because this is kind of interesting. You were an international insurance broker. You were a mayor. You were head of a state prison board. You were a stockbroker, a newspaper reporter, a Bourbon Street piano player, a corporate entrepreneur. You were presented to Queen Elizabeth and Prince Philip. You were in jail briefly and wrongly. That's probably related to the Bourbon Street piano player. You were a goat herder, a real estate Brooke, have you settled down finally, Bill? Yes, I have. I uh, I, I don't do a lot of those things anymore, especially <laughs> yeah, the jail part. Yeah. Do you want to tell us about the briefly and wrongly in jail? Yeah. I mean, it was, it's very simple. We uh, I went to New Orleans with uh, some friends, and we rented a van. And it was my turn to drive, so I didn't drink all day long. Got in the van to drive, pulled in front of a hotel, clipped a limousine. Ah. Uh. And the rule is that you have to call the police. The police rule is that if you have an out-of-town license, you have to go to the police station. I got it called the uh, the admittance area and accidentally got mistaken for somebody who needed to be in jail. So I got <laughs> put in a some guys that I'm wearing a three-piece suit, and it, it fortunately didn't last very long. Are you able to use this this vast experience that you have in your life in your writing absolutely all of the uh, the first books that I wrote are uh, archaeological thrillers or Indiana Jones type things I had used my experiences uh, vastly in writing those uh, twelve or thirteen books twelve or thirteen yes you've written twenty four books which I mean, in a num in a short period, that's quite an awful lot of writing. How many books are you writing a year? Uh, I was writing three books a year, uh, which ended with the pandemic year, and after that, uh, now I'm writing two a year, and that's fine. I'm, I need to slow down all of them, so two of them were to be fine from now on. And these aren't short books; they're three, four hundred pages. So it's not like these are things you can just you know write in a few weeks, right? That's correct. And there's a lot of there's a lot of uh, uh, research required because I want these books, I want people to know that I have walked the same streets that I'm writing about. That if I say I turned a corner and saw this, I want to say, yeah, he just did that. He just saw that. So you, you have three genres, supernatural thrillers, archaeological mysteries, and historical thrillers. I think there's only one of the latter. Have you actually seen the ghosts? Uh, yeah, a couple times. 
nothing like what I write about, but a couple of, yeah, I, I, I have seen those two times in my life. No, no really big deal, but. Oh, uh, okay. That's good to know. <laughs> no, big scary, no big scary thing. So you said that the first book was one that you had started 20 years ago, and this was one of the archaeological mysteries. Why in particular did you want to write about that, that type of book? Well, this book's called the Bethlehem Scroll, and the principle is that on the night Jesus was born, up on the hill with the shepherds was a literate child. Uh, I have always wanted a, a story about the star of Bethlehem and all that from a kid's standpoint. So basically what happens is his father goes, look at all this going on here. Joab, this might be important. Write this down. So that becomes a scroll. It goes to the Essenes, becomes part of the Dead Sea Scrolls, and then my book goes from there. Okay. And have you visited all the locations where these stories take place? Because that one's in the Middle East. Here's one in the lost city of the Mayas. You're all over the world with these novels. Well, all of the Mexican books I have visited. I've been to almost all of the Inca and Maya, the, the, all of the Aztec and Maya sites, and I've also been to, in Peru to a number of Inca sites. Uh, as far as the Middle East is concerned, I have been there, but the specifically the Bethlehem Scroll stuff was mostly made up, and it was uh, a lot of it is because it's three thousand, two thousand years ago. Yeah, I guess you have to make up stuff when it's that old, don't you? Pretty much. I'm I'm old, born like that. Old. <laughs> <laughs> Are you particularly interested in archaeology, or did this just seem like an interesting character to develop? I've, I've always been interested in archaeology more from the standpoint of finding something that's been hidden for a long time. So sometimes in my books, it's the archaeologi archaeological things. Sometimes they are treasure uh, that are outlaws hid or something like that. So that's more the premise than archaeology itself. But I do love the ruins, the Mexican ruins. I mentioned I live in the UK. I'm right near Stratford-upon-Avon, and I live next to a farm of about 200 acres. And once a year when the farmers plow, there are some people that come with metal detectors and they go through the fields. And this is an old village and they find a lot of stuff. And one day I was talking to one of them and he found Roman coins and coins with the figure of King John. And it's amazing how much you can find, not even if you're a real archaeologist, but just if you dig a few feet into the ground. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's the fascinating part of all this. So you've written 24 books. You're all self-published. And, and I want to talk about the business of publishing a bit. Did you try to get a normal publishing contract at first or not? Yes, I did. Um, got a number of rejection letters. And that was back in the day when Kindle was pretty young. I mean, 2000. Yeah. And so it wasn't just a, a you know, uh, I, if I don't make it this way, I'll just use Kindle. It didn't really work that way in the beginning. So enough rejection letters. I wanted to see the book in print, so I went to create space at that point and uh, and published the book that way and won some awards. And so actually, the things looked out fine. And one of the problem is later on, I had I had about ten books, and I decided I would try again. So I went to a writers conference, talked to an agent, and she said be very difficult for you independent authors to become traditional because you've already got your stuff and yourself established. You've already got your books. Traditional uh, publishers don't want to pick up your old titles and they're not necessarily going to want to pick up the next one in the series that you've self-published. 
So traditional publishers don't see this as like farm teams in baseball that that you're developing your 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 fan base and you're developing your skills over time and then you graduate to a different model. I think with some authors that's the case, and I think it, an author like Colleen Hoover at the moment, who's vastly popular, who's uh, got several slots in the top ten list every week, uh, she's been self-published, but. Now somebody picked her up, and a number of publishers have, and they will take her because she's already successful. I'm successful in a much smaller way. I've got a following, and I've got a fan list, and I've got uh, I sell a lot of books, but it's nothing like what I would need to be attracted, attractive to to a uh, traditional publisher. Yeah, but of course, the traditional publisher is going to say, well, we know how to develop that existing fan base and grow it, wouldn't they? Is it more that there's so much competition out with self-published authors who are successful like you? Um, I, probably, but I, I see it a different way. I think going to, uh, a, a, going to a, a traditional publisher now means I do the same amount of work for a lot less money. They like my title for a month or two months, and they will give it all they all they want to give it, and then it's gone. Yeah, I can keep marketing it forever on my side if I'm indie publishing, and so I I really like it a lot better this way. I've got all the control and seventy percent of the royalty, so I like. It. So, how much of this for you is about the writing, and how much of this is about the business? I kind of get the feeling reading your article that I'll link to in the show notes that it's kind of 50-50. Probably. The, the, the income is fun. It's not something that I have to rely on, which makes it even better. So I, I love to write. I love the reviews I get. Even the, even the two-star and one-star occasional <laughs> reviews, are, you know, they, uh, will, they, they'll teach you something. And if there aren't any of those, it's not real. So I I love reading when people say, you kept me up all night, darn it. I had to go to work tomorrow and I, I had to stay up. I, that stuff really gets me going. Yeah. Do you write 12 months a year or six months a year? Do you take breaks? Are you one of these people like Stephen King who says he even writes on Christmas and his birthday? Well, I'm, now that I'm doing two books a year, I'm, I'm I write for three months. And so I am prepping for part of the time when I'm not writing. Uh, I just finished a book that will that will be out. Um, well, I finished in, in it's out of the editor now. It'll be published uh, end of this month. And I am uh, going to take about a month off, probably, and go to Florida and see my kids and relax and have a good time. And then there'll come a time when I start again. I say, I've had enough. It's time to get back to writing. So for you, it's really, it's, it's a, I don't want to say it's a leisure activity, but it's something you have to do. Yeah. It's something that keeps me occupied and I would go nuts if I weren't occupied. We have plenty to do with my wife and I, uh, I write in the mornings only. So afternoons are free. We do all of the things we want to do. We also travel a lot and I don't write when I travel. So I deliberately take time off if we want to go to uh, to Europe or someplace in the States. So we have plenty of time to do the things that are important. But she is a, a very creative person, and she does all of her things, and I do all of mine. How much of that traveling is surreptitious research for a book? Uh, it ends up sometimes being a lot. I don't know in it that way, but 
my latest book that's just coming out uh, into this month is called Midnight Pass, and it's about a fictional town in Florida. And I was down there seeing my kids recently and learned that the biggest hurricane that ever hit the United States was on Labor Day, 1935. And it took away, I mean, it killed hundreds of people. So I used the fictional town called Midnight Pass, where the devil rode in on a hurricane one day, killed every person in town, and never left. Okay, that sounds like light reading. Fun to read at night in the dark. <laughs> yeah. So I hope so. Yeah. It, it, it's interesting because you seem to just want to create wild things. And, and that's wonderful as a writer to let your imagination go wild like that. Yeah, it's uh, I, I have a I do have a good imagination. I'm a, I'm a good storyteller. My wife says, you know, you're it's amazing some of the things you tell people. And I think I was there and I was I don't remember it exactly like that. But, you know, there's a, a friend of mine once said, never let the truth get in the way of a good story. So, you know, so that's that we I I enjoy writing. I enjoy all of this. And so I I really like to put the words on paper. How did you deal with this when you were, I don't know, selling insurance and you didn't have this way to express your creativity? Would you tell stories to the people you were selling the insurance to? Well, no. Well, not stories, not story stories. Yeah. I, of course, I wasn't writing at that point. So I, I've always... You know, I I just think I'm an outgoing person, so I'm friendly and I I like to talk to people. And so, in the when we were doing international insurance, my partner and I, uh, we had a lot of times with a lot of great stories, a lot of things that can be published, and a lot of things that can't. So there you go. Yeah. What what prompted you to start writing the very first novel years ago? Oh, I just the idea of the child on who was there when Jesus was born. It was. I mean, I was in my 30s probably when I started that book and I just put it aside I have a degree in journalism so something I never used until I got to 2009 and published that book and really got into doing it for a living okay we're going to take a break and when we come back we're going to talk about how you use Scrivener okay writing a book screenplay or even a long article is a juggling act you need to find the right words and the right structure keep track of research, and refer to notes. Tailor-made for long writing projects, Scrivener is the go-to app for writers of all types. Scrivener combines a typewriter, binder, and corkboard in a single app. A project outline makes it easy to get an overview of your work and flip between sections. Refer to research alongside your writing and just drag and drop to rearrange your work. Write in any order in sections as large or small as you like and let Scrivener stitch it all together when you're ready to share your words with the world. With Scrivener, you'll find everything you need to start writing and keep writing. Scrivener is available for Mac, Windows, iPad, and iPhone. Download the free trial from ScrivenerApp.com. Right now with Scrivener listeners can get a 20% discount with the coupon code PODCAST. That's ScrivenerApp.com. Okay, so Bill, have you used Scrivener to write all your novels? No, I I started uh, I think probably uh, the fourth or fifth novel uh, is when I discovered Scrivener and thought it was very difficult and uh, stumbled my way through it and decided that it had more pluses than minuses and stayed with it. So, how do you use Scrivener? What makes Scrivener the tool that you use for your writing? 
the thing I like about Spoonier best is its flexibility. You can move blocks of text around with Word, but it's so simple with Scrivener. And I, I use, I do a lot of chapters when I start. I may end up with a hundred chapters that, that get uh, called down to what usually are between 40 and 50. But I can move things around. I can move entire plots around. I can put things to the trash and deal with them later. Uh, it's Scrivener's is just the most flexible thing I've I've seen for writers. Do you plan your novels in advance? Do you outline or do you just make notes? How do you work? Yeah, I'm I'm a plotter, about fifty percent plotter. So I will I will outline fifty percent of the book, which I think for an author is about it all you can do. I I don't think it's I don't want to to do the whole thing because I don't want my book to be so predictable that I'm just writing. To, a, to an outline. I'm frequently when I'm writing that my characters have done something that day that I didn't expect. So I, I have a, suddenly have a whole new thing. Now people will say to me, That's, how, how's that possible? These people are all in your, in your head. Well, they are, but they do their own thing. And frequently they'll go off on a tangent, which I'm saying, I like that. That's a really great idea. And we'll pursue that. So maybe I stay on outline. Maybe I get off at that point and then change the outline. But but usually by 75% of the book, I'm finished with the outline and it, I'll wait from there on. Yeah, people who aren't writers don't understand that fictional characters sort of exist in your mind, in your subconscious. And as things happen, it's your imagination that spurs the characters to do things, as you say, that you didn't expect. Yeah, exactly. And that's probably the most interesting thing about writing fiction, at least from the writers I've talked to. It's the surprise element of what the writer discovers while they're writing. Yeah, I I think that's exactly right. I and in fact that's the most satisfying part when you you say, Gosh, that's that's better than I could have written it. You know, my, my characters came up with that on their own. So I want to talk a little bit more about the business of writing because you you are successful. 24 books in a very short time, two or three a year. You're mostly selling them on Amazon. I think on your website or in an article, you say that Amazon is 90% of your sales. Is that it? That's correct. Yeah. How does that work? So Amazon gets 30%, which you may hear in the news a lot of discussion about app stores like Apple's App Store getting 30%. That seems to be the standard for Google and Apple and publishing platforms and all. When you... Look at it like that. It sounds like they're getting a lot. But when you compare that you're getting 70% and a publisher, a traditional publisher is maybe giving you 10%, that's a very big difference. Absolutely. And that's that's what really makes all the difference for me. Uh, I, I'm content with giving them 30% for the platform that, you know, that everybody uses to buy books. Yeah. Your books are also available in paperback, and these are what when you go through Amazon, they can do the print on demand. Is that right? That's correct. What percentage sell in paperback, and what percentage sell in Kindle format? Probably twenty percent of my books are, are in prep, and that's fine. I make more money uh, on the eBooks. Yeah, I was looking up, and I, and I'll link in the show notes to a page that talks about the different royalty schemes that Amazon has that print books. They take 40% plus other charges, whereas ebooks, it's a lot simpler because they don't have to move anything around and, and it makes more sense. I don't, I mean, you're sitting in your library there where you have thousands of books and, you know, 
I've got shelves covered with books and less and less do I want to buy physical books just because they take up so much space. Yeah, I buy physical books normally if I need them for research or if it's something that I know I'm going to keep. I have a couple of favorite authors and I buy everything in paperback because I want to keep the books. Yeah. Uh, 99% of what I buy is, is, is e-books so that I can get on a plane with a Kindle instead of four pounds of books. Yeah. So I want to go back to your the genres of your books because it's kind of interesting. I had never heard of the genre of archaeological mysteries before. And it seems that the more self-publishing expands, the more, I want to say, micro genres there are. Yeah, that's true. And that's a that's a two-edged sword because it's really nice to be able to to hone down what your genre is. But then when you have to categorize it for Amazon, you have to put it into one of theirs. And so it can be historical fiction, which it, which it really isn't. It can be thriller or mystery. But you put anything in thriller or mystery, that's a, you know, it's a gigantic place. So you have to get it down further. And so it becomes a little hard sometimes to categorize a book that I would like to call archaeological fiction. So I just looked on Amazon. Your latest novel seems to be The Iron Door, and that is listed as historical thriller, suspense thriller, and thriller. So I, when you have three genres, you can put something in. Yeah. And I will never make number one in any of those because they're all too big. Well, thriller, forget it. You're up against, you know, John Grisham and Stephen King and, and everyone, and even Bill Clinton co-writing with James Patterson and things like that. Exactly. And it, it will never work. Now, on the other side, on my ghost stories, I could really sometimes hone it down. Uh, Callie was my, has, has been my most popular book and my best-selling book, which was my 13th, for some reason, it was my first ghost story. But that book, uh, I think, is it was in the worst genre, and it became, it was in the top five for a while under, uh, in that category. So that's interesting. So if a writer wants to get more attention, they can choose a genre or a category that's less popular. So that one shows up in Amazon as a cult horror, ghost horror, and a cult horror again. One is for Kindle and one is for print. So if you choose a category where there's less competition, maybe you can bubble up to the top. Yeah, exactly. That is, that's, yeah, it can happen that way. Okay. It's it's an interesting way of approaching publishing because traditionally you write a book. Publisher takes it, takes it to a bookstore and they say, and everyone's trying to sell the book on certain merits. And in a bookstore, obviously there are fewer genres and it depends on a lot of things. But here you have a bit more control over how your book might show up when people search. Yeah. Which is just one of the many things that you get as an independent author that you get to keep in your control instead of handing it over to someone else. I get to, I mean, I've got a great cover designer. I like my covers. It would disappoint me if I went to a traditional publisher and they said, Nor, not only do we not like your cover, we don't like your title. We also don't like your, we also don't like your main character. I think at that point, I would say, well, hell, I think I'll quit at this point. Yeah. I have a friend who writes mysteries in the UK and a couple of his titles in the US were changed because they contained words that maybe Americans weren't as familiar with. 
And so that means that on the author's website, you have to list the same book twice with two different titles. And sometimes someone will buy one with the other title that they didn't know, and they'll feel disappointed because it's a book they've already read. Right. Exactly. So how many readers do you need to make a living? I'm not asking you for sales of individual books because you've written 24 books. But, uh, you know, there is this theory by Kevin Kelly, who was one of the founders of Wired magazine, that like an artist or a band needs a thousand committed fans to make a living. I think in self-publishing, it's probably a lot more than that. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I've got around, I've got the biggest thing in self-publishing is your, your email list. You've got to have a fan list because those people will get a uh, a preview notice from me of an upcoming book, and I will get 250 pre-orders in two days. Well, that's a great base to start from because Amazon will use that to build up my my ranking. So those things really really help. I've got about I've got a, a little over 2,000 people on an email list. I wish I had a lot more. So, uh, but that's, I think that's the best way to do it. Yeah. The, a lot of authors talk about how important pre-orders are because on the one hand, Amazon's going to rank you better. But on the other hand, in physical bookstores, pre-orders have a publisher print more copies in their initial print run. So it has a lot of value for the author and the publisher, you know, all across the board. Right. That's true. In both sides. Yeah. 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 One quick question about Kindle Unlimited, because I've never understood how that works. They keep trying to sell me Kindle Unlimited, but I know I'd never really use it. What are the royalties like for that? Do you get paid per book, per page read? How does it work? You get paid for units read, for basically for pages read. Yeah. And it, it it's, it's very complicated. It is impossible to be able to ever go back and and justify how they're paying. You can, you'll never be able to do it. So you take the money and go. Uh, it's, but Indle Unlimited is very important because it, a lot of people use it. I mean, lots of Yeah. Yeah. And people, they'll discover your book without making a commitment and maybe they'll end up buying other books and telling their friends about it and all of that. That's exactly right. There are more and more indie authors, and it's interesting. It's it's not yet a counterweight to traditional publishing, but you sound like someone who's who's in the loop with what's going on, and you talk about going to writers' conferences. Uh, it looks like indie authors are starting to have a big weight in the publishing industry in general, aren't they? Absolutely, yeah. They're they're just it's just such a a huge number of people that they have to be listened to. So, yeah, I think, I mean, you look at Publishers Weekly, uh, I take Publishers Weekly, and they, every week almost, is more and more uh, of what the impact of indies are doing with the industry. I, I think it's great, but there's a hell of a lot of us out. Yeah, and, and I think the publishing industry in general is scared because it's something that they can't control, but they also can't quantify. They don't get the same kind of sales data that they can get for physical books that are sold. So they don't really know what's going on. And it means like there's this tip of the iceberg, which is traditional publishing, and then there's all the rest underneath that is out of their control. And I think this is actually an exciting time because more authors can make a living and you want to write and people want to read. Yeah, I agree. And Amazon occasionally will come out and tell you how many uh, authors they have who make more than X dollars a year, say $100 a year. Very, very small amount. 
uh, from what I've read, there there one in ten thousand who ever sells more than ten books. Yeah, uh, independent authors. Yeah. Well, that makes me happy at least that I could sell a lot, <laughs> lot more books than that. Okay, I like to ask my guests if they can recommend a book that they've read recently that they really enjoyed. What have you got? The Daniel Silva books. Daniel Silva is a wonderful spy author. He is the best, in my opinion. And his Gabriel Alon series, uh, those are the best books in the world. You can read them standalone, but I would suggest going back to number one. He's got 22 right now. Uh, I cannot I cannot tell you what the 22nd one is because it's out, but I haven't finished the 21st. And I have to say, I have to wait a month between them because I will read them all in, in, in five minutes. They're the best books I've ever read. Okay, Bill Thompson, thank you very much. Link in the show notes to your website and Supernatural Thrillers, Archaeological Mysteries and Historical Thrillers. I just love that. Thanks for joining me, Bill. Thank you very much. I appreciate the time. If you like the podcast, please follow it in iTunes or your favorite podcast app. To learn more about Scrivener, go to ScrivenerApp.com. Join us next month for another conversation on Right Now with Scrivener. Scrivener.